Old Testament survey, as you see. And if you have a Bible with you, I want you to go ahead and open it up to 1 Samuel chapter 2. Now back up a little bit here to 1 Samuel and the opening prayer of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2. We read the Old Testament, just as we read all of the Bible, with the goal of knowing the only true God, and therefore Jesus Christ, who has all of the same attributes and characteristics of that only true Father, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all sharing the same divine perfections. And so we read through the books of Moses, we read through the former prophets, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, with that eye of understanding who God is. This is God's story. And of course, there's uh, lots of other characters who are important and interesting who come on the scene, Moses and Pharaoh, Elijah and Ahab, Samson and Samuel, but all of these characters are only interesting insofar as their relationship with God, either through obedience and love or disobedience and lack of faith. And so really the goal in understanding all of this material is to be able to enjoy the eternal life that is through knowing the only true God. This reminds me also of a great verse there where Paul writes to Timothy and tells him, from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so here we are encouraging the young people and encouraging us less young people to be digging into the Old Testament scriptures, to be reading it for ourselves with that goal of knowing and understanding God. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. A lot of important things about you, but the most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think about God. And this is the book that is able to give you that knowledge of God so that when you're thinking about God, you're not thinking ignorantly or foolishly or wrongly, but you're thinking according to truth and reality. So that's why we're doing the Old Testament survey is to get you to read the book, all of this background information, authorships, dates, structure, outlines, themes, all of that is there to encourage you to feel confident to be able to read the book and understand what you're reading for this purpose. So let's pray that God will accomplish that purpose among us as a congregation. Father, we stop before we read your word this morning to ask you to lead us into all the truth. Each one of us here is helpless without you. We'd be spiritually blind, we'd be spiritually deaf. All of these wonderful rich truths would just bounce off of us without taking effect or without taking root in our hearts. Father, we therefore come to you and pray that you would give us eyes to see and give us ears to hear. Give us a heart that is sensitive and a heart that desires and seeks after the knowledge of you. Father, give me words to be able to speak that will be effective towards that end. And Lord, let us all be built up in our faith as we trust in your word that reveals your very person. We pray this for our good and for your glory in this church. Amen. All right, so I had you open to 1 Samuel chapter 2, and here we have the prayer of Hannah. And if you've been reading through Samuel and now Kings, you remember that Hannah was the mother of Samuel and that she was an afflicted person at the beginning of the story because she was barren. She wasn't able to have any children and she prayed to the Lord and the Lord opened her womb and gave her Samuel as a son. 
And so this is Hannah's prayer of exaltation that starts off the book of Samuel. Let's remind ourselves of it. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come into your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, and the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So here at the very beginning of the book, the author, by recording Hannah's prayer and praise, he is setting the theme for the book of Samuel. And this becomes even more apparent when we come to the end of 2 Samuel. So turn from 1 Samuel chapter 2 and come with me to 2 Samuel chapter 22. 2 Samuel chapter 22. And here we have David's song of deliverance. So it starts with a little prologue, and then you have Hannah's song of deliverance. And then we get to the end of the book, and you've got David's song of deliverance, followed by the epilogue in chapters 23 and 24. So you see that the book of Samuel is bracketed by these two hymns of praise to God, and they have the same theme. Let me read part of 2 Samuel chapter 22 so you see what I'm talking about. David said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. And we'll skip down a little bit here and come down to verse 21. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. The same theme that was picked up from chapter 2 in Hannah's prayer. The faithful ones. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. And then we come down a little bit further to verse 32. And who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The Lord is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. Come down to verse 44. You delivered me from strife with my people. You kept me as the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me as soon as they heard of me. They obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. 
The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king, exactly how Hannah ended her psalm, and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. So the book of Samuel is really the book of David, and Samuel is there to transition from the time of the judges to the time of the kings. And then Saul is there as a foil, a contrast to David, so that we can see that David is the covenant king that God has chosen, who he gives that amazing promise of the Davidic covenant too. So that is catching us up to where we are in the story by also reminding us of God's character, that the only true God is the God who lifts up those who are humble and brings down those who are proud. And that's the theme at the beginning of the book, that's the theme at the end of the book, and we see it throughout the book, that Saul became a proud man and God brought him down. David was a humble man. He was not the first son of Jesse. He was not from a prominent family. But God chooses those who are nothing and then makes them something because of his own glory and power. And so we always want to keep in mind God's choice of the less likely, of the least. And this goes all the way back to his choice of Israel. And he reminds Israel throughout the Old Testament, I chose you when you were the least of the peoples on the earth. You just had Abraham and Sarah who weren't able to have any children. And look what I've done. So God is the one who chooses those who have no power and who have no strength in and of themselves. That's the big insight into God's character, one of the many insights that we get from First and Second Samuel, which, as you remember, was originally one book. So let us turn then to 1 Kings. Now, when we come to our study of 1 Kings, we are continuing the story, and you see that from 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, Now King David was old and advanced in years. So whoever the author of 1 Kings was, he seems to be familiar with the book of Samuel and is just picking up where that left off. Uh, most likely a different author, but we don't know anything for sure about the author of Samuel and Kings. And as you look at the handout that I've given you, let's take a look then at the purpose for the book of Kings. And Kings, like Samuel, was originally one book. And you should think of it as one book that's in two parts. So as we look at the purpose of the book, and we're not going to cover the whole First and Second Kings today. I want to give you time to, to read these 47 chapters between the two books and not cover it too quickly. But the first half of the book of Kings shows the kingdom at its height, followed by its tragic division. The second half of Kings will show how the northern and southern kingdoms fall and are taken into captivity. So here's the outline for the first book of Kings. And you see that it shows Solomon all his glory. So you got the height of the kingdom there in the first half of First Kings. But then in the second half of First Kings, then you've got the division of the kingdom. And then when you come to Second Kings, you've got the northern kingdom going into captivity in chapter 17, the southern kingdom sliding down spiritually and finally entering into captivity in chapter 25. So that gives you a big idea for the book of Kings that goes along with the purpose of the book. 
Let's talk about the title of the book and the dates that it covers and the date that it was written. So in the Hebrew, the title is Kings. We have then divided into 1 Kings and 2 Kings, and that's why in the Septuagint and the Vulgate, it's called 3rd and 4th Kingdoms, because you remember, 1st and 2nd Samuel was called 1st and 2nd Kingdoms in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and so when we get to Kings, it's called 3rd and 4th Kingdoms, and so you see how these books really do go together. And it's been one continuous story from Genesis 1-1 all the way up to the end of 2 Kings. And we've followed all the way from the birth of the nation through their redemption, through their trying in the wilderness, through their entering into the land, through the period of the judges where they're tested to see whether or not they can obey God's law as given to them, and then the graciousness of God and giving them a king, and then the rise of that kingdom and the fall of that kingdom. One big long story about God's dealing with the people of Israel from Genesis to 2 Kings, the Torah and the former prophets as it would be in the Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim as the Hebrew Bible has it. So There's no right way or wrong way, so to speak, to organize the Bible. It's not like the Hebrew division of the Bible is better or we should go back to that. I just like to give you both because that way it gives you think through the books in a new way and to understand the best possible when you look at it from several different perspectives and the different arrangements that we have in our English Bible versus the Hebrew Bible. All right, so then we're looking at the date. What does 1 Kings and 2 Kings, the book of Kings, all together, what does it cover? It covers from the ascension, uh, or excuse me, the accession. Uh, that's something I learned this week. Notice on the handout, we have the accession of Solomon. And I always thought it was the ascension because I got those two words confused. And so I'm learning something new this week that the, when a king comes to the throne, it's not usually called an ascension, but it's called an accession with the CC. Uh, there at the beginning. So the accession of Solomon to the throne in 970 BC to the release of Jehoiachin, a much later distant descendant of Solomon, from prison in Babylon in 561 BC. So you see it covers a period of about 350 years from 970 to 560. That's not quite, that's more like closer to 400 years because there's just that one event there of Jehoiachin, but the actual captivity is about 350 years from the reign of Solomon, the beginning of his reign, to the destruction of the kingdom. All right, so when it was written, then, is after these events, and this is then during the exile, because the book leads up to the exile, and the last event recorded in the book is this release of Jehoiachin, which is about halfway through the 70-year exile in 561 BC. And so it was come into its final form there at, at least after that last event. And that the way that it's recorded makes you think that that's been a rather recent event that is forming the conclusion of the book. So we think the book was written around 560 to 540 B.C. during the exile when they were not in the land, they were taken into captivity in Babylon. Now, the author, whoever it was, 
He uh, cites different sources that he was probably making use of when he was writing the book. And he talks about the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel, the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah. And don't get those books confused with our book of Chronicles. Our book of Chronicles is not what he's referencing, but they would be works that were written during the time period of those kings and then were added on to. And so he's drawing uh, much of his historical information from those books. But he's not writing a mere history, a mere chronicle of the kingdom of Israel. He's writing the prophetic perspective on the entire period of the kings of Israel, both north and south. So the author, he's, he's a, a single author, but he's using different sources. And therefore, there will be times in the text where it will be referring to, to this day, and the to this day is not during the exile, but it's during the divided kingdom or whatever period of the book. So some of the sources do make their way into the text in those phrases. You see them in those phrases like to this day, like 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 19. 1 Kings 12, 19 says, Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And, uh, of course, you know, the northern kingdom eventually gets taken into captivity. So the to this day is probably before that uh, event. So the point is, we don't know who the author is. He does reference some of his sources throughout the book. And let me just throw this out there. that Many people have guessed that the author of the book might be Jeremiah. And Jewish tradition has identified Jeremiah as the author of the book of Kings. One of the arguments that I heard this week in favor of that view is that Jeremiah is not mentioned anywhere in Second Kings, and he was a very important prophet during that time period when Israel, or excuse me, Judah, was being besieged and taken into captivity. And so it's unusual that another writer writing the book of Second Kings wouldn't mention Jeremiah in his history. And so perhaps that is an indication that Jeremiah was the one who was recording it and didn't write about himself. But we don't know. Maybe Jeremiah wrote the book or compiled it from sources and gave the prophetic perspective on the history of the kings. But it's not of utmost importance to know the name of the author since God doesn't give us that name in the book. Now, let's move on then to the themes and the purposes. Any question about the title and the dates and the authorship? Let's go ahead and move on to the themes and the purpose. So it's called the Book of Kings. Not surprising that it's going to be about kings, but not just kings, also queens. You have Jezebel and Athaliah being a couple of important queens in the course of the book, but mostly about the kings, 40 of them that are listed, and we're going to mostly focus on five who are of most importance. Solomon as the king of the United Kingdom that the book starts with, and then for the kings of Israel, we'll focus on Jeroboam and Ahab. Those are the ones that the text focuses on. And then we'll also, then in the southern kingdom, focus on Hezekiah and Josiah, who are the kings in the south that the Bible focuses on. So you've got 40 kings, and you've got information about all of their rule, but five of them get much more attention than the others, and so that's where we will direct our focus as well. Now, let's start off then with Solomon as the most important among the kings. And the most important thing about Solomon is, is that he built the temple. You come here to the first kings and the first 11 chapters cover Solomon. 
some of the key verses there are about uh, Solomon in chapters 9 and, verse, uh, and chapters 11. But uh, one thing that is kind of lacking on this chart up here is mention of the temple. I don't see it anywhere up there, do you? The temple is actually a very important theme in the book, and you'll see that on your handout, that not only are the kings important and then the prophets, but then the third key theme there is the temple. Because when it comes to the reign of Solomon, and we get 11 chapters on, Half of the material about Solomon is about his building the temple and about dedicating the temple. So that shows us where the focus is from the prophetic perspective on the reign of Solomon. Yes, we do have a wonderful chapter about his prayer for wisdom and his extraordinary wisdom, which, of course, gives us the background for the book of Proverbs. We've got an interesting story in chapters 1 and 2 about how he came to the throne and some of the intrigue that was involved with the succession from David to Solomon, and that has a lot of interest uh, there as well. But the main purpose, the main focus is on the construction of the temple. And that's where we're going to spend a little bit of time focusing as well. So turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 8. If you're falling behind in the reading, I encourage you to get caught up, listen to the Bible on audio, or set aside some extended time. And as I said last week, if you need to read quickly and learn how to skim, this is a good way to be getting an overview of the contents of the text. So according to your wisdom, according to your schedule, be engaged with the text so that you're making the most of this opportunity. And in 1 Kings chapter 8, what we have is Solomon blessing the Lord in verses 12 through 21, as it says, and then his prayer of dedication in verse 22, down through the end of the chapter, where then you have his benediction and his sacrifice. It's a very long chapter, and I want to spend a little bit of time reading here on his prayer of dedication, because this is something that the author of Kings really focuses in on and gives us a lot of material on. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. That steadfast love, that's word here, chesed in Hebrew, the covenant keeping, the loyal, faithful love of God. So you see that together with the keeping covenant theme. Once again, drive home the point of the covenants and the importance of covenant faithfulness in this big story. God is faithful, the people are not faithful. That's the big story right there. Keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him, speaking of the Davidic covenant. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Now therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying... You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me as you have walked before me. So once again, you see that the covenant has a conditional element, just like the Mosaic covenant had that conditional element that if you are faithful to walk before God, if you are faithful to his covenant, then you will enjoy the blessings of that covenant. It's a constant theme throughout the Old Testament. Now, therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. So he starts off with a focus on the Davidic covenant, which was key for understanding the book of Samuel, which is really about the book of David, 
which really then focuses in on the Davidic covenant. Okay? So just to help you to keep in focus what's most important. Verse 27, he then moves on to the temple, the house. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place, and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. And listen in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. He goes on and prays for all the different issues that Israel is going to face and how they will turn to God and pray towards his dwelling place on the earth and how God will answer as they are faithful to the covenant and they are faithful to the place that God has chosen for worship in the temple. Now, you come down to verse 52. Let's catch the end of his prayer of dedication. Let your eyes be open to the plea of your servant and to the plea of your people Israel, giving ear to them whenever they call to you. For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your heritage, as you declared through Moses your servant when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. So we're still continuing the story of God's relationship with Israel, whom he redeemed from Egypt. Now, as we look into chapter 8 and we see this high point of the kingdom, the Solomon in all his glory, but really it's not about Solomon's glory, but it's about the glory of God as the writer of the book focuses on God's house, God's dwelling place, God's temple. God has brought the kingdom of Israel to its height. He's the one who created the kingdom of Israel. He created the people when they were nothing. He's the one who brought them out of slavery. He's the one who gave them a land, who won their battles for them. He's the one who gave them their law and their social structure. He's given them everything that they need. He's given them prophets. He's given them provision. He's given them grace. He's given them patience. He's been so faithful in everything that he's done. And now he's given them a king. And that king that he gave them, David and then Solomon, were at this point faithful to the Lord. Idolatry has been taken out of the land. Jerusalem, the holy city, has been constructed. The temple has been built. God has put everything in place. He's completely set them up for success. And they fail miserably. And so God has so worked in history to show us that even when God does everything to make it possible for sinners to be faithful to God and to serve God, that they won't. They refuse, that their hearts are hard, their eyes are blind. No matter what God does, people will sin against him. And it's not God's fault. You can't blame God for the failure of Israel when he has done everything that he could possibly do to set them up for success. Okay? That's really, I think, the big idea. And now, just as they failed during the period of Judges, after God had given them Moses, after God had given them Joshua, after God had given them the land and fulfilled all of his good promises and been faithful to the covenant, and they failed miserably during the period of the Judges, so now they're going to fail miserably during the period of the Kings. And really nothing has changed. God's character hasn't changed. The character of the people hasn't changed. And so God is driving home the same point, the same message, through repeating it in history. And this is the pattern throughout the Old Testament. God does something amazing and gracious and blesses people. People don't do a good job of responding to that and having faith in God and loving God and following God. And then God does something else amazing and gracious and moves his plan forward. Well, 
Now this is, this is the complete full point. This is the complete high point. There's nothing more that is God's going to move forward and give the people. He's, he's given them the covenants. He's given them David. And now all that remains is the new covenant. And that is what is coming yet as we continue through the story of the Old Testament and then get to the New Testament where God then will finally solve the problem of the heart. The new covenant solves the problem of the heart. And the prophets will talk about that. Jesus will talk about that. The New Testament talks about that. That's been the problem all along. It wasn't that they were politically enslaved. It wasn't that they were physically small or powerless. It wasn't that they didn't have the right rulers or the right leaders or the right kings. None of that was the problem. The problem was the heart. And until that heart problem is solved, then no matter what else God does for people, it won't be received. It won't be a blessing. All right, so that's what I really want you to see here in 1 Kings chapter 8. So come with me then to 1 Kings chapter 11. As you see, the decline and demise is hinging on this chapter 11, where the people of Israel go spiritually bankrupt, so to speak. So in 1 Kings chapter 11, you've got the sad title there, Solomon turns from the Lord. Just a few chapters earlier, you know, you can listen to it in one sitting there while you're doing dishes, and you've got Solomon praying that the heart of the people would turn to God and be faithful to God and praising God for everything that he's done for the people. But then we come to just a few chapters later and the end of Solomon's life, and this is what we find. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them. Neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives, who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. What a sad turn of events. What a sad ending for Solomon when he got to be old. Now, you remember in the Davidic covenant, we read about it last week in 2 Samuel chapter 7. What did God promise to do to David's descendant, David's seed, his offspring, if the descendant of David, the offspring of David, was unfaithful to the Lord, if his heart turned away from the Lord? Well, God promised that he would discipline, that he would chasten the descendant of David if he was unfaithful. Now, Solomon is the descendant of David. He is the offspring of David, but he's not the ultimate offspring of David. He's not the offspring of David that is going to sit on the throne forever that was promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7. 
However, he is an initial fulfillment of the promises and he's a typological fulfillment of how Christ is going to, in a greater way, be the descendant of David, the offspring of David, who's going to build a house for God, whose house we are. This new covenant house of God, this new covenant temple, is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to David that his descendant would build a house to God. Solomon built the symbol, the typology of this temple, this house to God that is now fulfilled in a greater way in the building of the holy temple that is the church. And Solomon, he failed, and so he gets the disciplines, the chastenings of the covenant. David's greater son, Jesus, did not fail and never needed to be disciplined or chastened. And he's the one that all the hopes and the promises and the covenants ultimately point to and are fulfilled by. So then in the rest of the chapter, you get the Lord bringing problems to Solomon and his kingdom, the beginning of its decline and its demise. Now, before we talk about the decline and the demise of the kingdom, let's also show you the height of the kingdom, the glory of the kingdom with this map here. This is the empire of David and Solomon from 1000 to 925 BC. So remember that Saul, he began the military conquests of Israel, and he fought largely against the Philistines. And so you see, by the time we get to the reign of David and Solomon, the Philistines have been pushed back and they just got their little strip over here. And they've pretty much given up fighting against Samuel and Saul and David. And Solomon doesn't have to worry about them anymore. And so the southern kingdom here is what David ruled over before he became king of all Israel. And then the yellow is where he became king of all Israel. And you can read about that in 2 Samuel. And then the green, as we see here, is the territory that was conquered by David. It's pretty hard to read, but that's what that says down there. So all of this territory was not Israel. Ammon, Moab, Edom, the Amalekites. All this was not Israel, but David had it under his control. So they were kingdoms that would have to pay tribute to David and would not war against David because he had defeated them and subjugated them. So they still were Moabites living in the land and Edomites living down here, but they were tributary kings to the king of Israel in Jerusalem. You see that the outline here is the boundary of the empire of David and Solomon, and we think it extends even all the way up here to the Euphrates River, that God had promised that from the brook of this river of Egypt to the Euphrates was going to be the kingdom that was established that he was going to give to the people of Israel. And so this is the height of that Old Testament kingdom during the days of David and Solomon, where all the way from the Euphrates up here down to this brook of Egypt, you've got the kingdom, this massive area of dominance and influence. Phoenicia outside of it, Philistia outside of it, but everything within this red being under their control. So that's the height of the kingdom. And again, it's not a massive amount of land compared to the United States of America or even a state like Texas. But, you know, for the time and the place and for Israel's history, that's pretty good. In fact, here you can compare Israel in 1999, I don't know what the map looks like today, to the kingdom of Solomon and David and see how much larger their influence and their dominion was during David and Solomon's time than it is in modern times. But slowly it gets tipped away 
God raises up the Edomites. God raises up against him adversaries from different areas. And eventually, they even lose the, the northern kingdom during the days of Rehoboam, Solomon's son. So that's the decline there that starts in chapter 11. Now, I just want to read in chapter 11, verses 9 through 13, so you can see God's explanation for why the empire starts to fall apart during the days of Solomon, the latter end of his reign. The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. So you can't blame God and say, well, you know, God should have warned him better. Or God should have done something to help him so that he didn't do this. And God says, I appeared to him twice. I spoke specifically about this and he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, probably through a prophet, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen." Now, when it says that he appeared to him twice, the first time was back in chapter 3 when he asked him, what do you want? And basically gave Solomon a blank check. And says, you know, I'm God, I'm almighty. Tell me what you want and I'll give it to you. And Solomon at that point was very wise and he asked for wisdom. Because the first thing to be wise is to seek wisdom, as he later writes in the book of Proverbs. So that was the first appearance of God there in 1 Kings chapter 3. But the second appearance is back in chapter 9. After the dedication of the temple and the sacrifices there, that wonderful celebration, the kingdom is at its height, the Lord appeared to Solomon in chapter 9. And let's go back and look at that once again. In verse 1 in chapter 9, it says, As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house, that's his palace, and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time, as he appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them. And the house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins." Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss and they will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. So God exhorts, he warns, he tells exactly what the consequences are going to be. This is good parenting, something we have to keep in mind. 
You set your kids up for success, you exhort them, you warn them, you tell them what the consequences are going to be, and then when they go and are disobedient and foolish, then the consequences stick. You don't say, well, I didn't really mean it, or I don't really have the heart to discipline them. A child that doesn't get disciplined, a child that doesn't get consequences for his foolish actions is going to be a fool his whole life. He who hates his child spares the child from the consequences of the action, doesn't discipline him. But he who loves his child disciplines him diligently. And so the Lord loves Israel. He tells the king of Israel, this is what you need to do. This is what's going to happen if you don't do it. He doesn't do it. And so all the consequences come. And God doesn't spare them from those consequences. He's very patient. He doesn't just destroy them the first time they show any signs of failure. He sends prophet after prophet. He waits generation after generation. But eventually, God does judge. So the theme of First Kings that you see up here is the spiritual and moral decay that lead to destruction. And not all at once. It's a long series of spiritual failures that lead to the ultimate destruction. But God begins by dividing the kingdom. And that's what we see then in chapters 12 through 22 as you read through the story. Now, God tells David's son Solomon here, the house that he has built, which has been the central focus of this first 11 chapters, whether you've got the glory of Israel at its height, and it's focused on this amazing wonder of the ancient world, this temple that God gave all of the gold and the silver and the skillful workers to Solomon and the peace around him to be able to accomplish this amazing thing. His crowning achievement, it's all going to be for nothing if he is unfaithful to the Lord. And in the very same book, remember First and Second Kings is the same book originally, in the very same book where the height of Israel is reached and the temple is constructed and blessed, in that same book the temple is destroyed. Every prophecy that is found in the book of Kings is fulfilled in the book of Kings. And here, the prophecy of the destruction of the temple is fulfilled in Second Kings. In fact, let's uh, jump down from our look at the theme of the kings to the theme of the temple. You have there on your handout the temple dedicated, constructed in First Kings five through nine. But come with me to Second Kings chapter twenty-five. Second Kings chapter twenty-five and verse nine. And what's the title for this chapter in the ESV? The Fall and the Captivity of Judah. God took away the kingdom from David, the northern tribes. He kept one tribe for David. And now even that one tribe is being taken away into captivity. And that glorious temple in Jerusalem that has stood for 300 years is now going to be completely destroyed. And we see that in verse 8. Pick it up there in Second Kings chapter 25, verse 8. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. And he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem and the rest of the people who were left in the city and deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon together with the rest of the multitude Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. They go from the height 
of the kingdom to the nadir, the lowest depths of the kingdom here in this one book. And that's, that's what the book records for us from the prophetic perspective. The question that is being answered throughout this book is exactly the question that God posed in 1 Kings chapter 9. Let me read it for you once again. We just looked at it in 1 Kings 9 where God was warning Solomon. And it says, They will say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? This is Yahweh's land. This is Yahweh's house. Why has this happened? And the answer is, because they abandoned the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt, and laid hold on other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. God's in control. He hasn't lost control. And he is bringing the consequences for their choices upon them, even though it means the destruction of his own kingdom. Now, David is held out as the example, the exemplary king that Solomon is measured by. And Solomon fails to measure up to the standard of David. David was faithful to the Lord all of his days. Now, you might look at the book of Samuel, the book of David, we might call it, and say, well, was David really faithful to the Lord all of his days? I mean, there was the matter of Bathsheba, and then there was the numbering of the people that brought the plagues on, and it seems like he also did a pretty poor job of disciplining his sons, and there seemed to be a lot of problems in David. He was far from a perfect man. When the Bible says that David was faithful, it doesn't mean he was perfect. It means that he never turned away in his heart from the Lord in a persistent manner, in an unrepentant, persistent manner. And so David is an example for New Testament believers also, that we as Christians are going to be counted faithful to the Lord, not because we've never failed, not because we've never sinned, not because we don't have major flaws in our character, but because our heart has stayed true to the Lord. And even when we sin, even when we fall, we turn back to the Lord. We listen to the voice of his people. We listen to the voice of his prophets in his holy word. And we come back with a repentant heart like David came back with a repentant heart. When he sinned with Bathsheba, he repented. When he sinned with the census, he repented. And he did so according to God's word, according to God's prophets, according to God's covenant, according to God's commandments. So God is not looking for sinless perfection in us. I mean, it would be great. Not like he'd be disappointed with sinless perfection. But he will give you the, the commendation of being faithful if you are faithful to his covenant. And his covenant makes provision for our weakness, our failures, our foolishness. And so don't give up and say, well, I've been unfaithful to the Lord and now it's, it's curtains for me. And remember, the covenant of God allows for your unfaithfulness. It allows you to turn back. And God's covenant is so amazing that there's a way to cover your sin. There's a way to atone for your sin. There's a way for you to stay in covenant relationship with God even though you don't deserve to. So Solomon's fault isn't that he messed up. Solomon's fault is that he didn't repent after he messed up. Catch that? Solomon's fault wasn't that he messed up. It's that he didn't repent after he messed up. And so if you see people who claim to be Christians and they don't repent after they've messed up, you say, well, they're not being faithful to the Lord. They're not being faithful to God's covenant and God's going to discipline them and chasten them and bring the consequences of their actions down upon them. Not that David didn't experience consequences, but not like Solomon. 
Solomon experienced different consequences than David. David was chastened. Solomon lost out on massive parts of the blessings of the covenant. All right, so you can learn a lot about God and our relationship with him and God's dealings with us by studying the book of Kings. Now, we're going to focus on the kings of Judah next time, and we're already running low on time this morning. But let's go ahead and take a quick look at the kings of Israel. Actually, no, let's not. I mean, two minutes? What am I going to do in two minutes? So let's wrap this up with a little review, and then we'll get into the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah next time. And we'll also, that's what we can do, we can preview what we're doing next time. We'll also get into the prophets, because while this is called the book of kings, it's not just about the kings, it's about the kings and the prophets. And as you find throughout the book of Kings, the kings, by and large, are failures, even the southern kings. There's a few good ones that we'll look at. But by and large, the kings are failures, and therefore the king of Israel, God, sends his messengers, his servants, the prophets, to the kings to rebuke them, to correct them, to chasten them. And so really, as we get into the end of 1 Kings and the beginning of 2 Kings, it's really the book of the prophets. Elijah and Elisha are huge at the end of 1 Kings and at the beginning of 2 Kings. And then we've got all these other prophets throughout the book that show up and do important jobs. And so the book of Kings is about the fall of the kingdoms and it's about the prophets who were there warning the kings and the people of Israel all along the way. So that's what we'll look at next week. I encourage you to finish up your reading in First and Second Kings by next week so that then we can then begin in the next part of our Old Testament survey following.